0: If you have your Bible on, you can turn to Colossians 1, verse 17, Colossians 1, 17, and we're going to pray. Father, pray that your word would go forth. It will cause exactly what you want it to cause. It will create in us transformation into Christ-likeness. We want that. I do believe that believers want that transformation, but sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's hard. And so pray that you would give us endurance and strength and that that strength would be our joy in you. So use your word now to make those changes. And as you chisel us, help us to lean on you, not on our own understanding, but in your grace. And pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so we're back in Colossians 117. And we're just going to do the first part of verse 17. And this text is short and simple. However, there is a complex idea within this verse. And this complexity comes just because Paul puts one little verb in the present tense instead of the past tense. And that one little difference reveals a connection between an entire set of doctrines that are essential to our existence, essential to God's glory, and essential to our joy in him. So that, so verse 17a says, And he, that's Jesus, and he is before all things. Now the word before could mean several things in the Greek, as well as in English, before can mean physically or like spatially in front of something. It could be meant figuratively, um, or it could denote like importance or priority, um, like the firstborn son is before the other children and in, in terms of importance or birthright or something. But the usage of the word before in this text, and because of the context, indicates That the meaning is temporal. That Jesus was temporarily before all things. I'll give you an example from Matthew 24, verse 38, which says, For as in those days before, so there's that word before again, also temporal. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Now the word before here, same temporal meaning, and it is a reference to a specific event and a situation that is not repeatable. We know it's not repeatable because the context of the flood, after it's over, God says, I'll never do this again. I'm not going to flood the earth again. So this is not repeatable. So before the flood was temporal, it's not going to happen again. There's no before the flood moment that we can repeat. So this is not repeatable or ongoing situation, but temporary, specific to that time and place. So then, if we understand the use of the word before temporally, then that must mean that somehow Jesus is temporal, temporarily before all things. Which would mean now, today, he's not before all things. So there's a little confusion here, I think, and I'm going to try to clear it up, and I I think it gets a little more confusing, to be honest. So I'm going to work through it with you. If before denoted importance or priority, then we would interpret this verse to mean that Jesus is more important than all things or that Jesus is supreme and sovereign over all things. Now, both of those things are true, but that is not what Paul is saying here. Rather, he is saying that Jesus was at one point in the past temporarily before all things so how is it that Jesus was before all things yet Paul says that Jesus is before all things so we got a problem with our verb tenses here present tense and past tense so we got a dilemma in timing and the key to answering this question and drawing an overall conclusion to the meaning of this text is to understand the importance of the word is. Now the word is, is a form of the verb to be. And the verb to be simply denotes existence. Meaning, Paul is saying, Jesus existed prior to the existence of all things. So what is Paul's conclusion here, ultimately? What he's really saying? Jesus is eternal and that is paul's primary point to validate and exalt the deity of christ that he is the eternal one and being eternal he is also therefore god but we still have this hang up with this idea that paul says that jesus is present tense before all things and the word before indicating a temporary situation. So is, present tense, and before, past tense. So we got a dilemma. He's saying past tense and present tense, so why does he use the word is to make it present tense? So Jesus can no longer be before all things because all things now exist. And he is no longer in the state of before their existence, so we have to say Jesus was before all things. Because that time when he existed before all things were created is no longer attainable. So we refer to him being before all things as something in the past. And we indicate that his existence before all things was in the past by saying was instead of is. Right? Simple English. That's how we talk. And because we talk that way and because it's simple English, this is a confusing verse that Paul says. He's talking about a past event that was And he's saying Jesus is, and that's confusing. So then why does Paul say that Jesus is before all things if that was a past experience, and why not say Jesus was before all things? And the answer to that question is also the main point of this entire text, and I'll repeat it again, because Jesus is eternal. Why does Paul say is instead of was? Because just as Jesus was eternal prior to the existence of all things, Jesus is still eternal. Past, present, and future, Jesus was and is and forever will be eternal. Now I'll give you another biblical example because I think... All of this talk about verbs and is and was and timing, and whatever, it can be a little confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because we're dealing with an eternal God who is also temporal in some ways because this eternal God left his eternal dwelling to enter a world that is temporary, to enter a temporal world. So it is naturally, I think, confusing a little bit. And parsing out the meaning of all this requires a little mental flexibility. So let me help with a biblical example from John 8:58 where Jesus says truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am Now the same question that we have in Colossians 1:17 is the same question that we have in John 8:58 why are they misusing the tense of their verbs shouldn't Jesus have said before Abraham was I was instead of i am the answer to that question is the same answer to the question that we have in colossians 1:17 of why paul says jesus is instead of jesus was when referring to the past time that is not repeatable and again the answer is that jesus is eternal so to understand how his eternality impacts the way he and other authors refer to his existence at different times requires that we dive into this concept of his eternal nature. Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am, because even though it was also it would also be accurate for Jesus to say before Abraham was, I was, what it, what that wouldn't do is it wouldn't exalt his eternal nature and thus would not exalt his deity or the fact that he is God in the same way that saying I am exalts his eternal nature and his deity. So when Jesus said I am, his point is to tell the opposing Jews who are questioning him at the time. They're questioning his messiahship. They don't think he's the savior. They think he's a heretic or just a prophet or just a lunatic or whatever. They think he's full of it. And and they're questioning him, and in the midst of that questioning, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. To point out the fact that he is, in fact, from God, from eternity, and that he is God himself. And this is why the response from the Jews who heard him say this was to pick up stones and throw those stones at him, but he slipped away, so they didn't get to stone him but you can see them tracking him because just two chapters later in John chapter 10 Jesus repeats this emphasis on his eternal deity in John 10:30 and he says this I and the Father are one and what does that mean it means that Jesus is claiming to be God and we know that because in verse 33 the Jews revealed their interpretation of that statement from Jesus And this is what they say to Jesus in response to him saying, I and the Father are one. They say to Jesus, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus is very clearly validating his deity and his eternal nature as God, meaning when Jesus said that before Abraham was, I am, he's not just saying that he's more important than Abraham, he is saying that he existed before Abraham and since he is literally a human standing in front of the Jews and they're ready to stone him in the first century, physically in, his, in their presence right then and there, the only logical con- conclusion is that if Jesus is before Abraham and Abraham was thousands of years ago, that what Jesus is telling them is, I'm eternal and only God is eternal. So he's claiming eternal deity. And the reason he says, I am, instead of I was, is because his existence has not changed. Yes, he's now human, and prior to all things existing, he wasn't human. <clears throat> and he was not human then, but he is human now, and that is a change. But he is just as much God In the first century as he was before and today and forever. Therefore, his I am statement disregards how he forms the verb and whether he uses was or is because his point is the same point that that Hebrews 13.8 makes. And that point is this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no change in his deity He may have become a human, and that was certainly changed, but his nature never changed, his deity never changed, his character never changed, his mind never changed. And in an effort to point out his supremacy, he refers to his eternality, and to point out his eternality, he says, I am. Because there is no tense to the verb when you are When you're the eternal God, there is no past, present, and future. There is no I was and now I'm this, I wasn't that and now I'm that. It's just I am. I am exist. I exist. He is the definition of existence. Your entire existence is predicated on his existence and his determination to cause you to exist. So we exist dependent on a God who is eternal. He is dependent on nothing. So there is no I was or I will be or I, I am. And sometimes in Scripture we see Jesus saying things like that, like I was or I will be, and he's referring, in the temp- he's referring to things in the temporal world. But when he refers to who he is, it's just I am. Because I always have been and I always will be. There's no point to me saying I was something that I still am today. So I just am. Before Abraham was thousands of years ago, I am. I exist always have always will and that's the point of Hebrews 13:8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever whether past present or future he is and that is exactly why in Colossians 1:17 even though Jesus existed before all things and in our English grammar we would say he was before all things Paul says that Jesus is before all things to validate and uphold and exalt the never-changing and eternal nature of Jesus Christ. And just to erase any question about this concept, Revelation 4:8 covers all the basis of Jesus' past, present and future, and it says this: "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come." And so what we got there is the angels in the future from a vision that John gets from Jesus himself of Christ being exalted on the throne in eternity in the future, being worshipped by the elders and the angels and in the, in, in the host of heaven, and they are saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The emphasis on Holy, Holy, Holy is very important because it's the only word that describes god that is ever repeated three times because god's holiness is his primary characteristic and so this this verse revelation 4 8, really shows us the centrality of who jesus is that in character and in nature he is holy 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 in hebrew language to repeat the word, to repeat any word a second time. So if you were to say, holy, holy, that is how Hebrew language emphasizes some concept, by just repeating it once. What they never did was repeat it a third time and say, holy, holy, holy. And that's the reason it's the only word in the Bible that gets dedicated to God and repeated three times, repeated twice, said three times, because his nature is genuinely holy. Holy. And, that to, and they're doing, when the authors of scripture say holy, 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 or when the angels sing holy, 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 they're emphasizing more than the emphasis that he is just holy. But he is beyond our concept of holy. That he is not, according to our Hebrew language, just holy, holy, to emphasize it. But beyond that, holy, holy, holy. So what Revelation 4, 8 is showing us is the core of who Jesus is. That in his nature, he is perfect and righteous and good and God and holy and pure. And then he says he is the Lord God Almighty, so verifying his deity. And then in this verse that shows us the centrality of who he is, he ends it with this. They end it singing with this. Who was and is and is to come verifying, validating, and emphasizing the significance of Jesus Christ as not only God, but eternal. So, holy, holy, holy describes his nature and his character. Whereas, he who was and is and is to come describes his existence. So he has always been holy, holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And he always will be holy, holy, holy. And that is why he's the one on the throne, getting songs sung about him. And that is why we will stand before him in eternity and sing these same songs and love it because nothing will please our perfected hearts and our perfected minds more than exalting the character, nature, and existence of our eternal God, Jesus Christ. Now, contextually, in this verse, in Colossians 1.17, this was incredibly important to this early church because one of the most profound heresies of their time was the spreading of the false doctrine that Jesus was not God. There are a lot of ideas that people spread about, a lot of heresies and false teachings that people spread about who he was, that he was either just a prophet, or he was just an angel, or he was a mystical emanation from God, or he's just a liar, or he's just a crazy guy, a lunatic. So Paul's declaration that Jesus is eternal God before all things not only clarifies this point from verse 16 that Jesus created all things, but it also clarifies the heretical nature of the false doctrines that were being spread throughout the church in the first century and those false doctrines still continue to be spread today. So this is Vitally important to our doctrine. This is vitally important to our worship, to our understanding of who God is. And I think that for us, to tell you that Jesus is God and to tell you that Jesus is eternal is an elementary truth. I believe that in the first century church today, in a room full of believers, you're going to have almost unanimous declaration that we all believe that Jesus is eternal and that Jesus is God. So this does feel very elementary. I mean, I learned this when I was like five, right? And I've believed it ever since. I got saved when I was six. I believed it before then. I believe it still today. And to me, this is a, I'm 39, so this is 34, 33 years of knowing this, This is ingrained in my head. There's no question in my mind that he is eternal, that he is God. I didn't read this and go, what? Jesus is eternal? I wasn't blown away by this. But I was blown away by this reality. In the first century church, they weren't sure of that. And because they weren't sure of it, they had to be told And the reason they weren't sure of it is because of the heresies that entered the church. Now, we would think of a heresy and say, oh, that's a bad thing. It's not from God. But I believe that that heresy and those false teachings were ordained by God to enter the church, to infiltrate the church, so that the church would question and not know something about Jesus they need to know. So that Paul would write this letter and we would have this teaching. Because if the first century church in Colossae didn't have the heresy invading their church that Jesus isn't God and that Jesus isn't eternal, then Paul never would have wrote this to them. They maybe would have just believed it, it never would have been spoken, it would have been assumed, and then instead, 2,000 years later, we'd be the confused church, going, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about Jesus being eternal, I don't know if he's eternal, I guess we'll just have to guess. So because of the heresy that I think God ordained creates an opportunity for Paul to teach us the nature and the the deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ so that the Colossians would get that information It would record it on paper, papyrus technically, and be reserved and saved for us thousands of years later. And so what is elementary to us was profound to the Colossians. And if it wasn't profound to them, it would be profound to us now. And it wouldn't be our elementary doctrine. And we wouldn't assume it because it's all over Scripture. Because it wouldn't be all over Scripture. So, though this is elementary, I look at it and say, what a great blessing that God would ordain a heresy to show up just so he can validate and remind us and emphasize his true existence and nature as an eternal deity that Jesus Christ has never changed. And that is great hope to us. And that brings up this question I mean, what does Jesus' eternal nature mean to us? I mean, how does this impact our lives today? Ultimately, throughout verses 15 through 20, Paul has one big goal. Because, like I said to you weeks ago, verses 15 through 20 are, I think, the probably the most important set of verses together that emphasize who jesus is from his existence to his eternality to his deity to his behavior to his mind to his characteristic and to his nature everything that he is is wrapped up in these verses and i think these are the most profound christ-exalting texts in the entire bible And in these six verses, Paul has one big goal. And that goal is to make the claim that Jesus is supreme. That Jesus is preeminent, that he's in first place, that he's before all things and above all things and more important than all things and creator of all things and Lord of all things and ruler of all things and therefore supreme over all things, that's people and objects and stars and the universe from the smallest to the biggest, things that exist in all of creation. He is before it, he is above it, he is more important than it, he is supreme over it and therefore and logically sovereign over all things, which... Paul will validate in the second half of verse 17, and we'll cover that next week. So though Paul's making a point in the beginning of verse 17 to validate Jesus' eternal deity, ultimately, that point about Jesus' deity and eternal nature is just a pillar that upholds his bigger point in verses 15 through 20 that Jesus is supreme. And he can't be supreme if he's not eternal. And it is the supremacy of Jesus that really becomes applicable in our lives. I'll give you an example. The other day, I think there's lots of examples I could use. I thought about this, and there are many, but this just happened to me like a couple days ago, so it feels very relevant. I was sitting at home on the couch, watching YouTube TV, because our our TV service is internet-based, YouTube TV. So it's not like cable or anything. So if the internet isn't working great at home, neither is the TV. Make sense? So sometimes you'll be watching TV and it'll just kind of pause. So I'm watching a football game, enjoying my leisure time, relaxing, legs up, chilling out, loving it, comfort of my home, watching my favorite sport, and the game pauses. And when the game pauses, that, one little, you know, that little circle starts rotating in the middle. I'm like, oh. The internet's freezing or it's, you know, it's lagging or it's like not buffering in time or whatever. I don't really understand it. All I know is it freezes. <clears throat> and usually if I just wait it out, it'll just kind of kick back in. So I'm sitting there. The wheel starts spinning. I'm like, ugh, oh, instantly annoyed. And then immediately, it's like God just shoves this thought in my head. And I realize, I'm like, oh, I think God... You have froze this game and paused it just to remind me that you're in control. And I know it sounds silly, like, why would God do that? Because he can do anything, and it's easy. What's hard about that for God? You know, and I'm just thinking, that that seems a little wild and silly, but you know what? I wouldn't ha- I wasn't thinking about God when I was watching that football game. I was thinking about football. And he pauses it, gives me the spinning wheel that is not starting again, and I immediately think, oh, this is God showing me that he's in control. That's a good thing. So I'm like, God ordained this thing to start spinning. So I would freeze and I would realize, oh, you're in control. You are supreme over the internet and my leisure time and football games and everything. And the moment I thought that thought, it started again. And I was like, "Hmm, win for God, yes. All right, God, I won't forget 30 seconds later, I forgot, and it froze again, and I'm like, ah, you're right, sorry, I totally forgot, you are in control and supreme over all things, you can start now, (laughs) come on, God. I get it, I forgot, you can start, it didn't start, and I'm like, okay, so I got to kick the legs down off the chair, get out of the comfort of my couch, I know, life is so hard, and got to walk over to the internet got to unplug the router and the modem, plug it back in. I'm like, you're going through great lengths, God, to show me your supremacy. So I'm restarting the internet. It kicks back on when I restart everything. And I'm like, that's a lot of supremacy that he can control the internet to that degree. Now, again, I think if you're thinking that seems ridiculous, that's not God. That just happened. And you happen to use that as an opportunity. But... What Ezekiel 36, 27 tells me is that anything good that I ever do and and realizing God is supreme and in control of all things is a good and holy thought. Anything good that I do is caused by God himself. So there's no question, if he's supreme over all things, then my internet freezing is his work and he produced in that an opportunity for me to recognize him. Now I share that example with you to show you a couple things. Number one, he's involved in every detail of your life. There isn't a thought or a moment or an instant that passes by that he is not there to show you himself. And sometimes we reject it, sometimes we don't recognize it, and sometimes he has to do something drastic to get our attention. And to remind us of his supremacy over our life, over our faith, over our salvation, over our family, over our job, over our church, over our leisure activity, over our entertainment, over sports, over the world, over the government, over the mail, over the internet, over everything. And the other thing it shows us is that his supremacy is not some distant rule over things that do not affect us. His supremacy is imminent, it is immediate, it is close and applicable to every second of every day of our lives. Every event in our daily living is a product of Jesus's supreme rule over all things happening around you and to you and with you and without you, all perfectly calculated to coalesce into events that we experience, that produce the most amount of his glory and the highest degree of your joy in him. That, knowing that, recognizing that, understanding that, should affect the way you live. It should affect the way you think. It should affect our attitudes, our perspectives, how we view the Bible, how we view the world through a biblical lens. It should affect all the things that we do. When we are aware of His supreme rule over our lives and His perfect orchestration of all events to produce His glory in you and your joy in Him, then life becomes more of like an enjoyable game. So my wife, she runs her business and Sometimes it becomes a little overwhelming to her because she's not like a numbers person. You know, she's an artist. She loves to create. That's why her business is painting. She likes to paint. It's creative. That's, that's an expression of her, her real nature. But because it's business, she's got to do numbers and taxes, and she just like hates that stuff. But she told me, she's like, when I start turning it into a game like a numbers game, it becomes fun all of a sudden. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. So she's able to turn something that's difficult for her into something that's enjoyable for her just by changing her perspective. Our entire life surrounded our understanding and supremacy of Jesus, changing our perspective on his absolute and total sovereignty and supremacy over everything in our lives affects the way we live. It affects our attitude and our perspective. It affects the way we enjoy life and whether we do or don't enjoy life. When we're aware of that supreme rule and reign over our lives, life then becomes this enjoyable game. And we know it's more than a game. We know this is real life. This is hard, this is heavy, it's painful, difficult, sufferable, insufferable. (laughs) But with a change in our perspective on the sovereign and supreme nature of Jesus Christ, which Paul will emphasize even more so at the end of this verse, which we'll get to next week, I said, then it becomes bearable and endurable to go through hardships and suffering and pain. So instead of, because, listen, we, <clears throat> my generation, so technically I'm a millennial, just on the edge of millennial. I'm like millennial with a little bit of Generation X. I was born in 82, so I got a lot of like Gen X in me because I was raised... My brother and sister are Gen Xers, and technically, I feel like I got my feet in both generations, which is good, I think, for a pastor to have a little bit of balance in there. Um, Our millennial generation, and even more so in the younger generation below me, is filled with anxiety and depression. No generation before has ever known such high statistics of anxiety and depression and hardships and 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 things that we'll just say 50 or 100 years ago would have caused a generation to endure because it was endurable. For this generation now is not endurable, and they collapse. Why? Because of this perspective. Because they don't know. This is the natural result of not knowing Jesus of an entire generation will and that's why the millennial generation is experiencing that and their kids that's my kids generation their kids are even worse yes phones are a huge part of it it's this constant inundation of pleasure enjoy and you know boost in chemicals that tell your brain this is good I want more this is good I want more this is good I want more pick up my phone I get instant gratification enjoy swipe through TikTok for hours or whatever my Facebook I'm just like getting all the things I need and I want instantly and when I put it down all my brain does is go I need that drug again that got me that high so phones are a big part of it but it's not it's it's culture we're filling our heads with the things on the internet. We're filling our heads with the things on TV. We're filling our heads with the things we listen to and read and see, the things people say around us. We're not filling our heads with the truth. And because that truth isn't getting, becoming a foundation to our lives, we fail and falter when we try to endure hard things, and that becomes anxiety-producing and difficult and depressing. And so it is natural that my generation would become more anxious and more depressed, and the next generation become more anxious and more depressed, and uh, I'm gonna assume that my kids' kids, my grandkids, will probably be even worse, that generation. And all of that can change in your home with this. This perspective on the supreme and sovereign nature of Jesus Christ to orchestrate all things for His glory and your joy in Him. Seeing him involved in every detail changes your entire perspective on life in general. So, with this culture that is rising up in America, and probably worldwide, I don't know statistically worldwide, but definitely in America, of anxiety and depression and that, those things getting worse, instead of just dragging our bodies and dragging our anxious and depressed selves through a 100 years of life, we have to realize and recognize we serve and live for the living, eternal God who reigns supreme over all things and all actions and all events and all circumstances so pro- to produce in you your joy in Him. So we run to our phones and we swipe TikTok and Facebook and whatever else, Snapchat. We run to our phones. For joy, because we've trained our brains to get joy there. That is where the serotonin kicks in. That is where that drug kicks in and says, Ooh, happy, happy, happy. And your brain gets filled with happiness and you put it down and you lose it. Instead of filling our brains with the chemical response of joy in learning about Jesus, knowing Him and experiencing Him. And that is hard work. It's hard work to to defeat and break down the addiction to the things that give us joy that are not genuinely fulfilling or satisfying. And it's hard work to create in you a new chemical reaction, a new physical and biological, which was ordained by God for your joy in Him. That's hard work. We have to put in the work. That means you have to wake up in the morning, pick up your phone, and go... Not today, Satan. Put your phone down and pick up your Bible and start reading and start praying and start serving and start loving and start living and start giving and start showing up and start doing the things that the Bible tells us to do because in those things are not rules for you to follow so that you feel good about yourself. They are ways for you to experience joy in Jesus Christ. Nothing nothing reveals that more to me then on work days at church, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, there's some things that need to get done around, done around the church. We've got to have a work day. In my heart, I go, no, 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 I hate work days. I do not like serving. I do not like building. I do not like cleaning. I don't like that. It's not me. I am a people person. I want to come to work day and follow you around and talk to you the whole time while you work. That's what I want to do. That's my nature. It is not in my genuine nature to love to serve with my hands. And I've said this before from the pulpit. That means if you see me serving with my hands, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's him giving me the gift of service. And, and so I say that because there have been so many times here where I'm, because the, the moment I think of a work day, I immediately am aware, because I'm so aware of how much I don't like physically serving, that I instantly go, Mark, attitude change. You, you can't think this way about the church. You can't go into serving this church with the wrong attitude because it's worthless. So I immediately have to start changing my attitude. I'm like, okay, three weeks from now we're going to have a, a work day. I have to find joy in it. I have to enjoy it. I have to love it. God, I need you. I have three weeks to change my attitude. So go to work. And that takes work. That takes prayer. That takes reading. That takes time. That takes effort. Thinking, changing the way I think. And by the time it comes, and then we're actually doing work days, it is so enjoyable. And I walk away from that going, why did I not like this? I love this. My entire perspective can change just based on hard work and intentionally trying to change your attitude and your perspective. And that takes work. And serving is one of those things that takes a lot of work for me. If you told me, Mark, go over there and meet those new people. Oh, great joy, not hard work at all. That's easy for me. And you might be the opposite. So maybe your hard work is to endure the hard work of having to become more social or something like that. My point is that with a change in our perspective comes a change in our attitude, and our hearts, and it's hard work. And all that serves your joy in him. He is sovereign over and supreme over all things and all actions and all events and all circumstances to produce your joy in him. Every wind that blows, every wolf that howls, every star in the universe that is moving away from the earth at unthinkable speeds, every molecule that holds all things together, all things and everything submits to his supreme rule and reign. And his supreme rule and reign over everything and over all of those things is intended to serve your joy in him. Do you get how big of a deal that is? Think about it like this. All of creation was given to Adam. Everything was given to Adam. And in Genesis one twenty-eight, God says to Adam, to humanity, subdue all of creation and have dominion over it. This is all yours. That was not intended to show us how special we are. That was intended to show us how much God loves you he chooses to give us authority and dominion over all of creation so that we could understand our place in the universe and usually when we think about our place in the universe we think oh god did that to show us how big he is and how small we are well there's truth to that but ultimately why god created all this earth and everything on it all of creation and told us to subdue it and have authority over it and have dominion over it was to show us our position in the universe, and our position in the universe is one of sonship. We are his. All of creation is his, and as his sons, we are heirs of all things. This is our world. God made all of this for his glory, yes, but he gets his glory by making all of this for us. And he makes all of this for us because it is supposed to make us happy in him. Because when we are most happy in him, he is most glorified in us. So the next time your internet goes out, or the next time anything at all, ever, in any way, in any way, shape, or form, any event at all in your life happens, take the opportunity to remember that this is the work of our Supreme Lord and Savior who is working all things for your good and for your joy in him and for his glory. That perspective... Will produce in you a more holy response to all your hardships and sufferings, as well as a more joyful response to all of your hardships and sufferings and to all of the blessings in life. So, why is that important? Two reasons. One, because we need to have joy in all circumstances, and that requires a biblical perspective of Jesus' supremacy. And two, Our response, which is predicated on our perspective of his supremacy, our response to anything in life, good or bad, is our testimony to the world. If we care about others getting saved, then it is required that we understand his supremacy over all events in our lives so that we respond with the greatest joy for his greatest glory and the salvation of people who are lost. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the goodness of your reign over all things, and that you give that reign to your Son Jesus Christ, who's earned it with his perfect life, sinlessness, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, and his throne upon which he now sits. We bow before that throne and submit to you because you rule over our lives. Help us to submit to you as you rule our lives. Help us to find the joy in all the things that you are doing, whether they are hard or whether they are easy, whether they seem good or seem bad, whether it's a blessing or a suffering or a hardship, whatever it may be, let us find you at the heart of it. Let us find your supremacy operating for our joy in you so that you would be most glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.